Amen. So we have seen days one through five. And just to remind us about some things that we have seen, some patterns that we have seen in the first five days of creation, um, we have seen that Moses' language in those days is not very exact, especially as exact as we would like it to be uh, growing up in 21st century American culture where we treasure science or where some treasure science and where we treasure things like philosophy and learning and understanding and actually trying to figure out the, the minutia of things. This can be frustrating to read because Moses does not provide minutia. We know from other texts that Moses assumes the earth was created in a literal six days, uh, those being 24-hour days, consecutive days, because in the Ten Commandments he says, in six days... God created the heavens and the earth within the confines of six days. And in chapter 2, when we start it today, we're going to see that by the seventh day, and there it does have a definite article, like God completed His creation. He completed His work. And we'll figure out what that means as we jump into chapter 2. But so far, in days 1 through 5, Moses has been inexact. One day, God created the heavens and the earth on a second day. God did this. On a third day, God did this. On a fourth day, God did this. And on a fifth day, God did this. We've seen a pattern, a parallelism in the days here. So verses 1 through 3, or days 1 through 3, parallel days 4 through 6. On day 1, we see the creation of the, the cosmos and the revelation of light on the surface of the earth on day four, which parallels day one, we see God distinguish the lights, uh, reveal stars, the sun, and uh, the moon. And so he is in, in day one creating the cosmos and revealing light, and on day four and in day four, filling those things. On day two, he creates the sky, makes the sky, and on day five, he creates the, the birds to fill the sky and the, and the fish to fill the waters which already exist. And on, on day three, he creates the, the land or brings the land out of the, the, the midst of, of the water. The land emerges from the water. And on day six, today what we're going to read, he creates animals and people to fill the land, to fill the earth. Moses, as we have talked about is writing in a myth style, the style of the ancient Near East myths of his own day. He's writing in this style, but he's making a very different claim. He's basically satirizing those myths in order to present some level of truth. In fact, the entirety of truth here in creation over and against the claims being made in ancient Near East mythology and the legends that have been created about gods and spiritual beings and turtles and snakes. So Moses here is writing perhaps the very first satire we have recorded, which I really enjoy that fact. I don't know what that says about me, but I, I really enjoy the fact that Moses is being satirical here and entirely truthful as he is writing satire. That being said, we'll jump into the the sixth day of creation here, starting in verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, 
cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the, and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So again, we see Moses pointing out the reality that this is the work, not of multiple gods, not of the Egyptian gods or the Mesopotamian gods. This is all the work of one single creator God who even refers to himself in plurality. And we'll talk about that when we get to God saying, let us make man in our image. We'll talk a little bit about the plurality of God. Starting in verse 24 here, we see in the, in the morning... On this sixth day, God says, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Again, He has already caused the, the ground, the land, the earth to emerge from the waters when He separated the waters out into a collection of what He called seas, right? And now He is filling the land with living creatures creatures, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. He is filling it. So, so God here, he has the same tendency to fill his creation that he has had on the previous days of creation. He, he creates, and after he creates, he fills that creation with stuff. He filled the cosmos with planets and stars, the sun and moon. He filled the sky with birds. He filled the, the sea with fish, and he's now filling the land with animals, Cattle, creeping things. God made the creeping things. Are you excited? Just, that just excites you, right? God made that too. It glorifies Him. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And then Moses, again, he just doesn't get at the minutia of that. He just says, and it was 
So. And it was so. He doesn't tell us the exact procedure God has. All we know from this text is God speaks and it is. And that's the way God works. But we don't know the minutia of things. I also find Moses' language here very interesting and very important. You notice on all the days of creation, particularly when God is forming living organisms, right, with the plants, he, he, God speaks to the ground. Let the ground produce plants. When he creates fish, he says, he's almost like he's, like he's speaking to the water. Let the water teem with fish. Let the, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And I find this language very interesting. First of all, it means that the, the animals were pulled quite literally from the ground, produced from dust, land, Right? We don't know the minutia of that, but we do know the, the, the source material there. It's, it's dust. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. And then we see this detail again too, like after their kind, lions aren't giving birth to snakes, right? Bugs aren't giving birth to small human children. It, it doesn't work that way. After their kinds. God, again, is creating order, and Moses is being very intentional here to describe a world that is ordered, and he's completely ignoring uh, one aspect of the ancient Near East literature that surrounds him and that he grew up learning in, in Egyptian society. He's, he's completely ignoring the existence of chaos because there is one God, and Moses so far has promoted this God's sovereignty and his providence, the fact that he created Everything, and he created everything in, in order. He is sovereign, and he is providential, and there's no room in that for any sort of chaos to exist because God is in charge. And this is very different from other messages that are being preached, proclaimed in Moses' day in virtually every land, in virtually every society, which says, the gods are also subject to the elements. They must fight chaos. And in some instances, they created humankind to serve them and to worship them so that they can gain the power to defeat the chaos and life can be good, right? And Moses, again, here, he's just, he's just telling a very different story. There's no such thing as chaos. God created because it glorifies him. He wanted to produce, so he produces. And he brings forth animals from the earth after their kinds. Now Moses is not thinking in a way that is evolutionary or scientific. And I think it's important for us to, to notice that or to know that, right? He's not trying to use the scientific method to get at the truth of things. He's telling the story about God and what God has done. And that's why there's, there aren't very many details here about exact specific procedures. Just that God spoke and it happened. It was so. This story is not about the universe itself. 
This story is not about exactly how things came into existence. This story is meant to reveal something about the God who made everything. Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, we see God take the time to observe His work. When He observes the work of His hands, He recognizes it as good. And then God said, now we get to my my favorite section of verses in all of Scripture. Everything written in the Scriptures, they come out of this. What is revealed right here in these few verses we are about to read from from, from verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 3, everything else in in Scripture flows out out of this paragraph. And if we don't understand this paragraph, what God wants us to to glean from this paragraph, then we, then we can never understand the rest of the Bible. Because it all comes out of this. Why does God seem to have a problem with homosexuality and transgenderism and off-sexual orientation? But the, answer, the answer comes out of these verses. Why, why do Christians, why does the church seem to value human life? Why is there a sanctity of life Sunday? Why does the church practice something like marriage and, and take it way more seriously than the world does? The world has made it so arbitrary, right? But this... These verses here, this is why I am under the impression that the state has no authority over marriage whatsoever. And it is something that belongs within the church. It is a, it is a very religious union. And so when we, when we walk through these verses, pay close attention to what's going on here because everything you read in the Bible, everything goes back to, to this. Then... God said, let us make man in our image. Immediately, this is different. It's different from the creation of the animals, right? Moses is already separating this out like humankind is not just another mammal. Technically, scientifically speaking, with the categories that we've invented and the boxes that we've created, technically we fit into the category mammal, right? But Moses here, he, he separates humanity out from animal kind. Animal kind got a few verses. God created animals. And he created them according to their kinds. He created them from the dust of the earth. But, but then we start reading about the creation of man, humankind. And so there's a, already humankind is sanctified there, set apart from the rest of creation, set apart from the rest of animal kind that is set upon the lands of the earth. But then we read this, this weird designate God, God talks to himself. Let us make man in our image. There are two striking things about this. When he created the fish, what did he say? Let the waters team with fish. He speaks to the waters. 
when he creates plants, let the earth sprout plants. He speaks to the earth when he creates animals. Let the earth produce animals from the ground, right? He speaks to the earth again. But here, he doesn't speak to the earth. Now, we know from chapter 2 that God quite literally formed the earth and breathed into it and man came about, right? So Moses isn't saying anything against that. This doesn't change the way we think it happened, but, but it, it changes how we perceive ourselves. And if, if we miss this in the text, like that means, that means everything for, for what we are doing as a, as a church, for what we are doing as the body of Christ, for what we are doing here in, in Douglas and in Cochise County in the state of Arizona and in the United States of America and around the world as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like this means everything for how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive other human beings. And our, it means everything for our work ethic and it means everything for our views on laziness and workaholism and the things that we dedicate ourselves to. It means everything for raising our children in the, in the way we do. We do church. Let us. Amen. In our image. God speaks to himself and he speaks about himself in the plural. We saw this in verse 1, right? Starting in verse 1. When Moses refers to God, he refers to God as the Elohim. El would be singular. God. Just El. Elohim. It's plural. But he's speaking about God as if God is only one being one essence and then God refers to himself and speaking to himself he says let us plural make man in our plural image singular and so we see one God but he exists in plurality and the Bible does not yet reveal at this point in the story like what the plurality is but we have seen who we refer to as the Father. He's referred to as God in this chapter, right? Who we refer to as the Father. We have seen who, we, who is explicitly called the Spirit here, the Spirit of God. So that's two persons of the singular essence. And we haven't seen Him explicitly here, but implicitly, the, the Word of God. God speaks and things happen. In John 1, John tells us, Jesus, in the beginning, He was the Word, and He existed with God, and He was God in the beginning. This is John chapter 1. Everything that was made was made through Him, and nothing that was made was made without Him. And we read Genesis chapter 1 in light of that later revelation. It's like, this is Jesus here in Genesis chapter 1. This is the Word, the spoken Word. So God, this plurality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we, we receive at least implicitly all three persons of the Trinity here in chapter 1. And then we see God saying, let us make man in our image. So the source of the fish is the sea. Let, let the waters teem with living organisms, with fish. And the source of the animals is land. They come from the earth. And the fish come from the sea. But humankind comes from God. This is important. 
And God does not say, let the earth produce man according to its kind. Instead, he says, let us make man in our image according to our kind. Humanity is the only species on earth not created according to her own kind. Humanity is created in the kind of God, the image of God, according to God's kind. That's what it means. And Moses here is very clear about that. That's why he's been so careful to talk about kind. So we take that and we're like, oh, let's put it on the, on the genus level. So if, if evolution were real, right? This is the way people present this. So if evolution were real, then it can't go past the genus because God created according to kinds and then we don't get any more out of it than that. But Moses here, he's, he's doing something much bigger than that. Animals created according to their kinds. Plants according to their kinds. Fish according to their kinds. Birds according to their kinds. People according to God's kind and God's image. Does this change the way or impact at all the way you think about people, human beings, as opposed to all the other organisms on earth? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, our kind, and let them rule. Moses didn't describe it purpose like this to any other organism. And here he's doing something else amazing and extravagant. Let them rule. The communities, the societies surrounding Moses, who is part of, he's leading this wandering tribe of Israelites around the wilderness, right? He's doing that for 40, for 40 years. He's going to lead them in the wilderness. And he's writing this in the midst of other societies all around. He's about to go into the land of Canaan, multiple gods that just came out of the land of Egypt, multiple gods. Mesopotamia is right there, multiple gods, deities, all this ancient Near East literature and the mythologies that they are producing, the, the legends that they are producing, telling us about gods who created people for servitude so that they could maintain power. And here God says, nah, God created people to rule. Quite a, quite a different claim, quite a different approach to things, almost as if God doesn't need someone to serve him or to worship him. Huh, interesting claim, Moses. That's not how you get followers, Moses. People need to believe that God needs them or they won't follow, okay? But Moses isn't interested in that. He's just interested in telling the truth. So God created people to rule. And that seems self-evident. People are what? At the top of the food chain. It seems to us that the creatures of the world are, fear us. Right? It seems plain. We are the ones who hunt them and we are the ones who have them as pets. Those animals are on our dinner tables, not the other way around. Right? Rule them. 
And so the Bible turns humanity in a very different direction than the ancient Near East mythologies. And Moses is doing this on purpose, right? And notice, Moses never here gives people the authority to rule over others. God never here gives people the authority to rule over others. Now, I'm not saying government is terrible, right? But that makes me think government officials are public servants, not rulers. Yeah. So this applies even to the way we think about government. I think John Locke would agree. He's the one who developed the political philosophy that the founders of the United States of America used when they implemented the American governmental system in the republic democracy that we have and we currently get to enjoy as, as fully as we do. Let them, let people rule. Why? Because we are created in the kind of God God does not serve anyone. God is sovereign. God provides all things. So it only makes sense that when he places his image on the earth, he, he says, you rule. You are my representative. You are my ambassador on the earth. You are the picture of me on the earth. You are after my kind. You were created to rule. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, you have authority over insects. Well, that's, I guess that's good, right? We have authority over the earth. We are charged to roll over it. And what we do here on the earth matters, whether we're taking care of it or not. There are quite a few people who take this word, this instruction for us to rule over the earth, and, and, they, and they say that means to steward the earth. And that is not incorrect. That's exactly what we're doing, because ultimately the earth does belong to God. We are placed here to rule it. But he is the one who rules us. So that rule is always representative. The way we treat the earth matters. The way we treat animals matters and the way we conserve nature matters. The way we do everything we do it, it matters. Ethics matter, right? Verse 27, so God created man in his own image according to his kind. In the image of God, he created him. Uh-oh. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Again, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Male and female. Now this requires some explanation in our day, doesn't it? In a day when everyone wants to be gender inclusive, and in a day when people want to tell others that they can 
define their own sexual orientation and gender, and they can change that by surgery if they so want. People who claim that men can have babies, and people who imply that women no longer matter because men are everything again according to this new way, right? I have some news here. God created male and female, and Moses is very careful to point that. He doesn't point that out about the, when the animals were created. The text doesn't say, God told the earth to bring forth animals, male and female. Now, there are males and females, right? But Moses doesn't clarify that in his text. I think he's doing this for a reason. When he creates plant life, he doesn't say, this is how the plants, you know, have babies. He's not clarifying that in this text. The, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, he's not saying male and female, but when we get here, he says people, male and female, this is the image of God according to God's kind, like male and female. So people say, well, God created dolphins with homosexual tendencies. does not matter because they're not people. People are different from dolphins. If you didn't know, okay? Here, he, he created him male and and, and female for a purpose. What is that purpose? Look, if you're reading the Bible and you, and you read a line that says God created the male and female and your immediate question is why, that's a good question. We should be asking that. Where do we get our answer most of the time in the Bible? The next verse. So let's read the next verse. God blessed them. Moses calls this a blessing. He created male and female. That's a blessing. God blessed them. It's a blessing to be in your natural state, to not have to change for anyone. Like, that's good news. That's what the church is preaching now in the midst of our current society. You can be who you were born to be. Amen. Okay? You don't have to change to meet society's standards, and you don't have to force yourself to comply with whatever weird desires you have. Okay? That's just stressful and burdensome. Like, you have to do, you have to do more work to do that than to just live the way God created you. It's exhausting. It's a burden. It's a blessing to live in your natural state. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Why? God has already shown this about himself. His desire is for his earth to be full. And if he desires his earth to be full of creatures who are not after his kind, he desires his earth to be full of creatures who are made after his kind in his image. Be fruitful and multiply, he says. Well, how do you do that naturally? Male and females, right? And God did this on purpose because I don't think he wanted anyone to just be self-sustaining, like just be able to pop out babies at will. I think he wanted us to depend on one another because even though we are in the image of God, we are not gods, right? So be fruitful and multiply. This is part of God's instruction for humankind, the responsibility of humankind. How can you steward the whole earth if you haven't covered the whole earth, right? That's why there are male and female. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Like that's part of subduing the earth and ruling over it is filling it, covering it over. Katie and I were talking this morning about how the church today, it is the Christian people who are celebrating 
birth and who are striving to raise their children well. It's the church that's doing that. And who are, who are loving orphans and trying to adopt as much as the state will let them adopt, right? Who are trying to take care of those in need. It's, it's the church doing this. And most others are just complaining, right? Complaining that we have a problem with abortion. And that when a, when a Christian woman has seven or eight or nine or ten or what is it, fifteen babies, it's the church celebrating that life. And those who don't know Christ are the ones saying, see what happens when you don't take birth control, when you don't practice safe sex. But the church is celebrating life, y'all. That's a refreshing change in the world today. The celebration of life rather than the condemnation of it. A culture of life rather than a culture of death. And we find it where? In the church. And one of the first signs that we have rebelled against God and are living in sin is we start speaking against things like sanctity of life and the sanctity of sexuality. The, the, very, the very foundation of human existence and human purpose there. Why? Because we don't like God? Because somebody hurt us in the past? Or because we just want to live life the way we want to live life with no repercussion? I think that's what it ultimately boils down to. But Moses calls this a blessing, and I think it's a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Christians, people of God, be the most passionate lovers in the world with your spouse. Have babies. Fill the earth, which involves discipling children teaching them how to rule over creation and, and, how to, and how to work and how to subdue the earth. Like, that's the priority. We, we prioritize so many other things rather than teaching our children how to steward the earth, how to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals. But our instruction is to teach our children how to not just survive in the world, but to, but to rule over the world. To see the world progress. To work God's garden. To, to build the world that God wants, which, which again leads us into the, the post-millennial ideal that God is actually making progress here and He has put us here to do it. And He put humanity here to do that even before the church. It was with Adam and Eve. Rule over the earth. Take what I have made. Rule it. Make something out of it. And I think God's excited. Well, I think he already knows what we're going to make out of it because he has all knowledge. But I think he's excited as we get there, which is kind of cool. Rule. Then God said, Behold, I have given. This is a past or a perfect tense, right? God looks at man and said, Look, I have given you every green plant for food. He's not doing it right now, but he's, he's speaking, telling man, hey, I, I've already given this to you. 
I have given this to you and I will continue to provide this for you, right? I created plants to produce their own kind so that you will continue to have food. Like, that's one of the purposes I, I did this for. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. All right. So there are some who take this verse to say that all people before the fall, be Adam and Eve, okay. before the fall, only ate vegetables all the time. Look, that's not what the text says. It's possible that people could have been vegetarians before the fall. Yes. But it's not necessary according to this text. What does God do here? I have given. You're already eating this. I have given this to you. All the green plants on the surface of the earth and every tree, it shall be food for you. Now this is important to remember because when we, when we get to, to Genesis chapter 9, God speaking to Noah says, Hey, I have given you every animal on the face of the earth to eat. Okay, so, so God's not like against eating meat, which is good. Because I, I like bacon, <laughs> like hamburgers. So I'm glad. But this is important because when we get, when we get to Genesis chapter 9, God's doing something. He's doing something new there. And it's important for us to know here that God has explicitly given plant life for food. So that when we read later when he gives animal, animals for food also to humankind, that he's progressing toward a sacrificial system there that will foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice, pleasing aroma to God, God being pleased to crush him according to the book of Isaiah. And Christ will fulfill the sacrificial system and become the substitutionary atonement for, for his people. And so when we, when we eat meat, then it has a very specific special meaning if we work through the text of Scripture. Like here, God is giving plant life. And when God gives, gives animals for food too, it's like, ho, 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 God, what are you doing here, right? And that leads into a sacrificial system. And surprise, people would consume the sacrificial system and then Christ would give himself on, on the cross, the final sacrifice and before he does that he has the, the, the Lord's Supper communion with his disciples and he says this is my body eat it, consume it referring back to the sacrificial system saying this is what sustains you and nothing else so here in Genesis chapter 1 it's important for us to remember that detail first God explicitly gave plant life it doesn't mean people didn't eat anything else but it means God is giving that here and he's given that here for a theological purpose not necessarily a practical purpose. People jump into practicalities. They jump right into the practicalities all the time. Well, God did this. Because at the time, people didn't have the, the right tools to cook their meat well, and so it would have made everybody sick. And God just had a real practical purpose for doing this. Look, God is not a pragmatist. You read the scriptures. God is not a pragmatist. He's, he is artistic. He, he goes over and above. He inspires Poetry, look at the, the art and the cosmos and the beautiful sounds we hear. If God were a pragmatist, 
we would all just be robots making babies. And that's it. God is not a pragmatist. He's doing something beautiful here in history. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made. He steps back and looks again, and behold, it was very good. He has a, a qualifier there. It's very good. It's not just good. This is very good. This, this all works together beautifully. There are ecosystems and there are laws of physics and uh, animals are having babies and people can have babies and plants are reproducing according to their kind. Okay, everything is ready. Everything is ready to go. And there's evening and there's morning, the sixth day. And here, unlike the previous days, Moses adds a definite article. And I love this because there's something different about the sixth day. The sixth day is different from one day, on a second day, on a third day, on a fourth day, on a fifth day. It's the sixth day. Why? God has created the crown of his creation, humankind. And upon the creation of humankind, all of creation and the ecosystems and the laws of physics, they're all knit together right there so that the earth can survive and be maintained by providence according to the systems of cause and effect and like the, the water cycle and the oxygen cycle and all according to all the systems God put in place the earth will now be sustained not by some like the ancient Near East myths claim not by some direction of the local deity or not by the working together of the sun god and the earth god and the moon god and the god of the sea or the, or the god of hell or the god of the afterlife, the underworld of war or whatever. Like None of that determines the outcome of the earth. No, God put natural systems in place to sustain the earth. And there is the sixth day, and the earth now has stewards to take care of the earth. That's humanity. And so everything is ready to go. This is the sixth day, which is why in Hebrew numerology and in apocalyptic literature, the number six becomes a symbol for humankind. And when humankind sins, the number six becomes a symbol of imperfection and sin. And so that means something even for the way that we read the book of revelation chapter two thus the heavens and the earth were completed done finished god is not putting new systems in place god is not changing systems that are already in place he put humanity here to be stewards we are still stewards he completed this he's not changing the laws of physics god is consistent that's why we can count on tomorrow Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, done. And all their hosts, everything that fills them, done, completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work. The seventh day, another definite article, which means the seventh day is important, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. You mean to tell me that God needs rest? Well, why did God rest? Not because he needed a break from his work. He rested because the work was done. It was finished. Uh, when you finish a project, what do you do? You stop working on that project. That's common sense. That's what God does here. It's completed. It's done. Now I'm going to rest from that work because it's done. Finished. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day. The seventh day. Definite article here. 
and he sanctified it. This is the day we call the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, this is why Moses instructs the, the people of Israel, God, in six days he created, on the seventh day he rested, so you rest too on that day. This is why we do the best we can to plan out our weeks, to work hard, and then to rest on the seventh day with our families. Whatever it is we're doing that we, that we define as rest, right? As long as it's restful, as long as we're reflecting on, on God and everything that He has done. He blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work, which God had created and made. So, we are God's image bearers. We are made according to His kind. So like Him, we work. And we have a good work ethic. And we get to enjoy our work. And we get to enjoy the fruits of our labor. We get to look back on our work and we get to evaluate it and we get to see that it is, it is good. We can appreciate the work that we do by observing it. We don't have to feel weird or have this pretend humility about us where it's like, no, I don't really do a good job. I don't really like my work. You know, people like that. Oh, you could probably find a better guy for this. We shouldn't be like that. If we are God's image bearers, we should be able to look back on our work and say, I really worked hard on that. I think I can, I think I can be proud of the work that I did, not, not in a weird, selfish way, but I can look back on that and say, it is good. I'll never do that perfectly. I don't think any of my work is perfect on this earth, right? But if I'm looking at it and saying, man, that is good for me. How can I, how can I get better? And then every project becomes better and better and better. Like I think that honors God. We're created in His image, right? So we can work and we can enjoy our work and we can look back on it and say it is good. And then at the end of the week, if we have planned our weeks well, we can, we can rest at the end of the week and we and we can have work and we can have rest and perfect balance not being lazy and not being workaholics which with both which both lead to disaster in relationships and with depression and anxiety like if we are poor planners in life from week to week we will experience more anxiety we will be more depressed we will feel like we're working and working and working and spinning our wheels and never get anything done. That's what we'll feel like. And plenty of people experience that. But here, God sets the example and creates us in our image and He teaches us the balance here. And nobody's going to achieve that perfectly right now. My spirit is so willing to do that. These bodies, though, they're still the flesh. Our bodies fight against our spirit like we read in the New Testament. This balance is something we strive for. There's a lot that can be said here about... <laughs> I can say a lot more. Are you ready? <laughs> There's a lot here that can be said about the importance of discipleship in the home and family worship, teaching our children to, to rule the earth. There's a lot that can be said here about the importance of family-integrated church life, right? Where children are part of the body and we're all learning to steward creation together from God who gave us this book and why we can do that and learning about redemption so that we are being renewed and refreshed, re re reborn, reformed, and our communities are being 
reformed and revitalized through our work and we're seeing the kingdom of God come because God is interested in a, us building a city out of this garden, right? Like we read in Genesis 1 and like we will read in Genesis 2. Like it's totally messed up in Genesis 3. There's a lot that be said about that. There's a lot that be said about the importance of having multiple co-equal elders at a church rather than one single pastor trying to lead a congregation here because God said rule over the earth, the fish of the sea, birds, like right from Genesis 1, rule over the fish of the sea, the, the birds of the air, the animals on the land, eat plants. Never once do we see that people are to rule over other people in any sort of way. That's why the deacons are there as mere servants of the church, not some kind of ruling board over the church, right? That's, that's why the elders are there they're to serve the church and be good stewards and managers of the church and its, and its resources, its theology, but to serve. But we, we rule together and equally. And the elders represent the whole body and that set the example for the whole body and that's in reality the, the whole church, every Christian is co-equal in this. And we are stewarding the earth together, building a, a city out of the garden that God gave us at the very beginning. This is cool stuff. And this chapter of Scripture is the most relevant chapter in Scripture for us today. We need to get back to our roots, y'all. We need to get back to our roots in Christian theology. Amen. Amen. Amen.